0: Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. We're on episode 248, and I'm Ian, host of Chat with Traders. And we're going to mix things up just a little bit today, where Tessa will be interviewing our guest, David Sun. David's background is in electrical engineering, but he got turned on to options trading over the years and appeared on the Tasty Trade Show as a rising star guest. With a talent for options trading, he then went on to start his first hedge fund in 2018 and then added a second one in 2021. In this interview, Tessa discusses an overview of David's systematic options trading. It has to do with a multi-layer approach using stop losses which is not common in options trading and even advised against. And how David takes advantage of high implied volatility, not in the way most option traders would think, and his take on managing the win size to loss size ratio. This episode assumes that you do have some basic level of options trading knowledge. So options traders, I think you're in for a treat and may come away with some actionable ideas. By the way, David will make an appearance inside the Chat with Traders community where I will dive deeper with David into the mechanics of his strategy. Please join us in this live online discussion on December 7th. Go to Community on the Chat with Traders website to join. We hope to see you there. We would now like to introduce you to our guest, David Sun.
1: Hi, David. Welcome to Chat with Traders.
2: Hey, Tessa. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yes, it's very good to have you on. Um, we have a lot to cover and why don't we just dive into it now? But before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of things, I usually like to hear a little bit more about the human side of traders. So if you don't mind, can you just share with us a little bit about yourself your background?
2: Yeah, no, no problem. So my background's is actually uh, in electrical engineering. So that's my Education and uh, so I don't have a formal finance background. Um, I got into options when I was actually doing my master's, and it was a buddy at grad school that got me into options. At the time, I I randomly just wanted to get into the market because I, I think it was like the 2008, 2009 time. So obviously the the markets and the stock market in general was kind of on people's minds whether or not they were you know into trading. Um, and at the time, I had no knowledge. You know, I was just randomly watching CNBC and like following Jim Cramer and just just picking stocks. And so my my buddy got me into options. Interestingly enough, actually from the point of view of selling options, because I know people who get into it tend to get into it as buyers of options and almost like speculating directionally. So I was actually selling puts very early on for for better or for worse. And again, not knowing really anything and just kind of blindly selling puts. Um, I wasn't even rolling. I was just like picking based on how much premium I wanted, thinking like, hey, um, uh, if I collect this amount of premium, then I can make this percent. And I think occasionally, uh, if it did get challenged, I would like, he was like, hey, you can rule for a credit. So it was very unsophisticated. And uh, the bad thing is it worked for a couple of years. So, you know, m- made a decent amount, but then at some point the market turned and I gave a bunch of it back. Um, So I got a little disillusioned and uh, I kind of stopped doing it for a bit. But I had a friend who was also trying to get into the market or just doing research on stuff because he knew I was in options. So he introduced me to Tasty Trade and this was in 2017. So that was, I guess, the... Beginning of like kind of the, the the reinvigoration of of my interest in options. Um, because if, if people follow tasty trade at all, they know that it's kind of retail oriented. There's a lot of content, um, a lot of stuff to learn. You kind of just I was drinking it all up. And that in terms of the learning curve was kind of what accelerated things for me. Um, so I started kind of getting a little better and I got confident enough, you know, this was like a year and a half in that I, you know, I was doing well. And something gave me the idea that, hey, it'll be cool if I could scale up what I'm doing. And I was like, well, if I could do this for others and just kind of keep trading, but I can make money doing it. You know, I basically started a hedge fund in late 2018. Um, did that, you know, that was going well. I started a second hedge fund in 2021. And so, you know, it's been four years, and so I've been kind of just continually pushing my own knowledge and developing strategies and you know that was kind of the, just the trajectory yeah so that was like a uh, from beginning to end probably like a 10-year journey 10 plus years at this point and that's that's kind of the, the very high level quick quick fly through
1: mm-hmm. so from electrical engineer to options trader now hedge fund manager yes I wanted to back up just a little bit. Before options trading, did you just trade stocks at all? Or you just went straight into options?
2: So I picked stocks for like a couple of months. <laughs> because as I mentioned, that was around the time I was in grad school. And I was telling my friend about it. And he got me into options. So I basically dropped stocks pretty quickly. I mean, it was mm-hmm. still uh, involved in a sense that I sold puts on what I would have bought stocks on. And again, very unsophisticated. It was literally like, see what Jim Cramer mentioned or pick five random stocks, or it was like Apple and Visa, or like, uh, you know, just just, and then just selling a put and then doing that. So yeah, I wasn't trading stocks from early on. It was basically just selling options for after like two or three months of, you know, quote unquote, trying to learn the market
1: hmm Because that was kind of like uh, what people usually start out with when they, when they first trade options, right? On the sell side, they usually sell puts. That's kind of a, a popular thing to do. Is that true?
2: Once you get past the buying kind of calls to speculate on the upside or buying puts, selling puts and especially cash-secured puts, one of the kind of the intro strategies is like the wheel, which is basically selling cash-secured puts, which is selling a put on and a stock where you have enough funds to take assignment and buy hundred shares of that stock if, you know, if, if it's put to you or gets assigned and then turning around and, and, and selling covered calls against the shares. So uh, I, I think that's kind of the introductory or like the first quote unquote safer strategies that, you know, new option traders will learn.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, I'd like to ask some questions about your hedge fund. The reason is because we've had great episodes so far that mention the use of options to trade or, or use them as part of a hedging of a portfolio, or options seems to be uh, widely used in, in hedge funds. But I don't know if we've taken time to pick one or two strategies and really break it down far enough at the level where even though these can be advanced and in complex strategies in in some of these hedge funds um i think us re- retail traders can still get some ideas to possibly you know play with and experiment with more to be able to implement into our own strategies so i'd love to get into a bit a little bit about that and why start a hedge fund are you a founder owner or you just manage hedge fund
2: um both actually so a hedge fund is essentially just like a, a pooled investment vehicle. So there's a number of parties that pool their capital, and it's set up kind of like a limited partnership. So all the people, investors who are just providing capital, you know they're limited partners, and I am a general partner, which essentially trades the the account. It's all commingled funds. Uh, just kind of like an administrator that does the books and allocates the profits uh, proportionally to each partner. So basically everybody gets the same return regardless of how much they've invested and so this kind of structure is a way to manage a large pool of capital without having to trade multiple accounts so some people might be familiar with something called smas or separately managed accounts where you're kind of giving somebody a manager access third party access to your personal account so they trade in your account and they have something where they they do a strategy and you know the trades get kind of pushed to all of the different accounts at the appropriate size, but you know, each investor still kind of keeps control of the funds and they can see what's going on. Whereas a, a hedge fund, it's commingled. And that makes it easier. That's my preference because you can think of it as trading one large account as opposed to multiple small ones. And for capital efficiency and margining, it just kind of works more easily. But to answer your question, yes, I started, founded, if you will, and also manage kind of two too small. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not Ray Dalio. I'm not managing hundreds of billions of dollars. These are relatively very small in the grand scheme of things, but it's kind of a similar setup.
1: Yeah. I, I ask because it takes a certain mindset to be able to go from trader, just a regular trader, and then now to uh, open up a hedge fund. It tells me that you have an entrepreneurial. You know, side of you. It's it's hard. It's hard to be able to do that, right? To manage the business and also the money. Would you be willing to um, describe some of your main bread and butter hedge fund strategy that you're using? Uh,
2: the kind of uh, regulation that we operate under is we can't do public marketing, so to speak, and we can't raise capital and public and talk specifically about performance and stuff. But I do share overarching philosophies and General strategies, maybe not exactly the way they're set up, like in the fund. But like I said, even through my own podcast, which I think you've heard a couple episodes of, like I share kind of different facets and, and the approaches and ideas behind them. And so I'll give kind of an overarching philosophy behind the two funds and like what the approach is. And so one of them is using options as a tool to combine with traditional buy and hold. So, you know, people talk about. Long term passive investing. If you buy and hold SPY, right, the SP 500 ETF, you're going to get the market returns and it's passive and you'll get, you know, nine to 10% return a year or whatever it is, which is great. Um, but once you do that, right, it's a passive approach and you're pretty much subject to the whims of the market and you take what the market gives. But with options and the way, because they're capital efficient and the way they're margined, you can essentially run an option strategy on top of a, a, a passive. Buy and hold portfolio, and it's it's basically an overlay. So, if you think about it, if you were to run option strategy and, and even target some very small return, one, two, three percent, whatever it is, and if you can consistently do that, and that's basically stacked on top of your buy and hold, you know, whatever your core, it doesn't even have to be S and P, just whatever you want to typically do as a you know uh, uh, stock investor, you, you're basically just adding that return on top, right? So basically, you get to kind of enhance the return, if you will. So that's the approach of one. It's like you have some core portfolio and you can mm-hmm. consider that like a personal benchmark of you something that you'd have regardless. And if you can just add a little bit on top, you're essentially kind of enhancing the yield. Um, mm-hmm. And so options is that the tool to basically overlay a strategy. Um, and then the other fund is kind of more of a pure option strategy. We don't have any underlying you know, equities or stock and, and it's kind of a, Rather than a benchmark approach, it's considered an absolute return, right? We're just trying to generate some target um, or some level of return, regardless of what the overall market or any other benchmarks are doing. And it's using pure option strategies.
1: So, okay. So these are the two, what you, the it, two... It, um... Those
2: are the uh, approaches. I haven't gotten to the strategy specifics yet, which we can dive into one of them, but that's okay. kind of, I wanted to give a high level of kind of the approach and what you can do and kind of my vision for how, you know, cause different funds have, you know, different mandates or uh, different strategies or different philosophies or kind of what they're trying to do. And that's kind of the two approaches that that we happen to have.
1: Yeah. I'd love to dive into um, each of those two approaches. Uh, that'd be great. And, would love to know too cuz we just had a recent episode on episode 242 uh where we had Chris Cidio on as a guest and he described you know uh, some of the approach in in his hedge fund strategy to using options more like i think like an insurance right um you know with the long vol trade and also mentioned the other side of it having absolute an absolute return strategy like the one that you just mentioned. would mm-hmm. love to also understand what the main differences are in what you're doing.
2: Yeah, so it's it's kind of an interesting. And this is a good example of what I meant about kind of different mandates. So Chris's fund is meant to be a tail hedge protection for uh, no, an institution or somebody that has some other portfolio that they want to protect, right? And so they would allocate some capital to Chris's fund as kind of the insurance policy. And in his fund, uh, he broke it down to where they have one part that is the hedging, you know, or buy and put options on S&P or whatever else that's meant to be the protection. But he used the example of when you pay for insurance, there's always a cost, right? And there's the bleed. So if you want large protection, you're going to pay a large cost. And, if you pay a large cost in you know, this event or whatever you're protecting is never manifest and you basically have no benefit. It's just money down the drain, right? So to offset that bleed to the extent possible, they run some other option strategies on the side that's kind of the absolute return strategy. And they're using that to quote unquote finance the cost of hedging. And so what happens is in his kind of product, you don't really expect a return, so to speak, because the, under normal circumstances the options you know the income from the absolute return strategy it's it's just going to go offset the bleed from the hedge so the you know you're not going to get like a profit from allocating with him on a normal circumstance but the reason you do so is because if you can that if you can get that quote unquote free hedge then when the event does happen you know his fund is designed to have a large payout you know a few hundred percent right. so you get that large return on investment um And so the mandate and kind of the risk profile of, if if you think of his fund as just a product, right? Because, you know, what are ETFs and mutual funds? They're they're funds, they're just products. So hedge funds are just, you know, private funds. But that's kind of his approach. Whereas um, the second fund I mentioned for us is, whereas we just have, because we do short-term trading, we're not not trying to have some kind of large convex or tail hedge profile. We're just trying to generate, you know, uh, some return that's, irrespective, you know, uncorrelated to the overall market. So that's kind of one way to kind of compare and contrast or just think of funds as different products, right? Uh, but we're just not ones you can go out and buy on you know, on, on the exchange, right? Uh, it's not some mm-hmm. like ticker symbol we can trade.
1: Interesting. Okay. So let's, um, yeah, I would love to learn more about this um, second hedge fund first because <laughs> since you just mentioned it, can we break that down a little bit more?
2: Yeah. So... The approach that we take, and, and just to be clear, that both the first and the second fund use the same types of strategies as the return or the options portion. The only difference in why the return profile is so different is because the first fund uses you know, index funds, for example, as a base, and options are kind of a small piece to sort of enhance that. Whereas if you separate those, Drop the index funds and just focus on the options and size that up. You get a certain return with that. And so one thing I kind of want to point out is that again, options are just tools, right? You can size them up or down and use them in different ways in conjunction with other, you know, pieces of your portfolio to design an overall profile. Um, so if, if that makes sense, like you know, again, with, with what Chris is doing with our second fund, our first fund, it's it's our options, but how you use it and when you use it, that's what makes a difference. But let's talk about kind of our approach on options. Because okay. when we sell options, um, and I know your audience uh, probably is mostly familiar with stock trading. So uh, they may not have intimate knowledge of like Greeks and stuff. So we'll, we'll try to keep it very basic. We'll, we'll mention that you know, Greeks are something you have to be aware of, but you don't have to kind of dive into how they're calculating everything. But when you sell a put, for example, depending on where you choose the strike price and, and there's a delta involved with every option and, and delta very simply is just a measure of how much an option price will move for every uh, dollar move of the actual underlying. But when you look at options and look at the option chain, the delta can be kind of a, a proxy of the probability of profit or the probability that that option will expire in the money at expiration. And so, If you have some probability of success, and the thing is, a lot of new traders who get into option selling, they always want to focus on high win rate or high pop, you know, probability of profit. And so they'll sell these far out of the money options that presumably will have a 80% win rate or 90% win rate. But the issue with this kind of approach is because options are nonlinear, what happens is you have a high win rate of winning some small defined amount. But when they move against you, they can move against you very heavily. So you could have like a 5X multiple loss or 10X multiple loss. And so it doesn't matter if you have a high win rate. If when you lose, you lose big, right? You basically give it all back. So what I set out to do was using different mechanics, I wanted to fix that win to loss ratio so I use kind of a simple example. If I sold an option and I clicked it, uh, we'll just use round numbers, $100. That's your maximum potential profit, right? You can't make any more than $100, but you can lose a lot more. And two simple mechanics I'll do. One, you No, know, we will close the option at a certain profit, right? Because we don't, there's risk involved with holding them all the way to expiration. So let's say I want to, capture 60% of the profit. And so this is a little thing where when people are selling options, they have to learn to kind of turn things around. I've sold something and I've collected this credit of $100 to kind of enter the position. So if I if that option decays and the price goes down and I buy it back or buy to close for 40, right? So I collected 60 and I paid 40. My net profit is $60, right? Which is 60% of my original max profit of 100. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now that's taking a profit on a winner. So on the other side, we've mentioned that options can move largely against you. So I don't want to risk a 5X loss or a 10X loss. So let's say I'm going to cap my loss uh, at 200%, right? So if my maximum profit is $100 because that's what I collected and I'm not willing to lose net more than $200, what I'll do is, I will stop out or buy back the option if it goes to a price of 300. So if we step back, if I sold it for 100, but I paid 300 to close out and get out of the trade, I've netted a loss of 200 or 2X. Does that make sense? hmm Okay. So this creates a very simple win-loss ratio, right? If I win you know, 60% on a winner and I lose 200% on a loser, it's like a roughly a risk three to make one, right? So-
1: You've just defined your max loss.
2: Yes, in practice. And and people talk about like, what if there's a big gap or what if you can't get out at that price? Those are all real considerations. But just from a theoretical standpoint, you're right. I, I have basically defined my win-loss ratio, win-size to loss-size ratio, risk to return, so to speak. And so in my podcast, Um, I talk about this concept called expectancy hacking. And the idea is when you talk about expectancy, which is kind of how much you expect to profit on average for every trade, right? Once you factor in all the winners and losers. And I mentioned people always focus on the win rate, but they don't focus on the loss size. So if I have now fixed the win-loss ratio through my mechanics, the only thing that remains to determine my expectancy is the win rate, right? Expectancy is kind of a function of those three things, the win rate, the win size, and the loss size. Now, even if I have fixed the win-loss ratio, I don't know the future. Like I can't know exactly how much my room rate is going to be, but I will. I know that if the win rate is high enough, right? And expectancy, you can kind of multiply it out. Like your win rate times how much you win and then minus the loss rate times how much you lose, you'll get some average expectancy per trade. And so the win rate's high enough, the p- expectancy will be positive. And if it's too low, it'll be negative, right? Period. That's it. It's either above or below kind of that so called break even win rate. And so the only last piece is you kind of have to find a strategy. You, you can do back testing or you can just kind of play around with different, uh, mostly through back testing, at least to get some context. Obviously, you have to live trade to see if things play out. But if I have a, you know, with, my strategy well one of them that we do and getting back to the delta if we sell a put option you know at you know 15 delta or whatever it is we found that the probability of profit of such a strategy using you know the profit take and the stop loss you know it's somewhere in the neighborhood of you know 87 88 percent and long story short that basically is high enough to kind of generate a consistent positive expectancy. You have to let it play out over kind of a number of trades, right? Any one trade could still win or lose. But the idea is to look at the long-term trend, right? So after all the trades, right? And you kind of fix this win to loss ratio. At the end of the day, you look at how much you've kind of netted in terms of profit. So let's say every trade I sell, I collect $100. And if the expectancy at the end of the day, after everything's done, including all the losses, is I'm averaging about, let's call it $25, uh, $25 for every $100 I sell. So that's what I call kind of the premium capture rate. Because with, when all said and done, I've netted or captured 25% of all the premium I've sold, right? And I, I, I shorten that to PCR for premium capture rate. And it, it's for me kind of a measure. It's like, okay, I'm basically trying to net 25 cents on a dollar if you want to kind of, Bring that down to like a, a smaller, um, easier to easier number to to talk about. So that concept of the expectancy hacking and the premium capture rate, using those very simple mechanics of shaping your win loss profile and mm-hmm. letting the win rate play out over long term in a very kind of systematic probabilistic way. That's yeah. kind of the approach. Um,
1: How do you prepare for like? big spreads and slippage and things like that in your premium capture rate? How do you take that into consideration?
2: Right. So firstly, I've only been applying this to the most liquid of instruments, which is Mm -hmm. SPY or SPX. Um, It can be done with ES options, you know, um, E-mini S&P futures options. Or if for smaller accounts, it, it can also work on MES, which is the, the micro um, options, uh, the futures options. So that's the first thing. On a very liquid instrument, the spread will be tighter, right? If you try this approach on some really low volume or you know meme stock, <laughs> it's probably not going to work the same. So that's for one. And the other thing is to focus on longer dated options. I know recently with kind of like the, the the meme stock and the retail and the Robinhood you know, mania, you know, there's people trading very short data, like weekly options, and you see all these videos on YouTube about like weekly paychecks and right 70 DT options. The the shorter data, the option, the certain um, parameters or Greeks about the way they move and reacting to in reaction to how the market moves that will basically cause the spreads to be wider, right? That's kind of what you're mentioning. So I generally apply these strategies to like 90 days or further, right? 90 DTE. So that's kind of one other way. And those two will mostly keep you kind of more protected in terms of having very liquid options that you're trading. But at the end of the day, you're right. There are times when you, have to cross the spread, right? If, if volatility gets really high or even if there's a gap, right? Again, I mentioned the caveat is that you have to kind of hope that you can control that loss amount. And sometimes let, let's say you close, you know, end of the day and the, the option is sitting at close to your stop loss, right? 180% or whatever. And the next day, the market gaps down, right? Likely by the time the market opens, the price is already past your stop. Now you should still get out, But in this case, like, yes, you're going to take a stop that's higher than you anticipated. But from what I've found with enough occurrences and long-term, even with those instances where you have to cross the spread or bad slippage, you just bake that into your expectancy math, right? So let's say with that kind of perfect three to one ratio, some win rate, X win rate is going to give you Y expectancy. What you'll find through testing and live trading with the slippage, your loss is a little bit higher than X, right? Which just means your mm-hmm. expectancy is a little less than Y and you just basically bake that in. Right? So I sometimes get pushback about this approach of it can't work because you'll never get out the slippage and this and that. Um, but my response is just, well, just embrace those things, right? If you know they happen, figure out a way to mitigate or work around them and just incorporate them into your models. And that's kind of my approach on it.
1: Mm -hmm. To minimize that, the spread and slippage possibilities from from the very start, you don't really get into individual stocks basically, right?
2: That's correct. For this approach, I don't. I'm I'm focusing, it's mainly focused on right now as the S&P index because that is in fact, right. The most liquid. um.
1: Yeah. Okay. But if you do, I mean, if someone wants to not do that and, and go into like individual stocks, for example, I, I actually like to pick individual stocks, but that are super liquid as well, probably not as liquid as SPX, but, but then if you also do that and also diversify have not just one underlying stock, but several, maybe like say five to ten, would that make it less risky as well? Um
2: so that can help in the sense that if the individual, you know, tickers you're trading aren't completely correlated, right? You're gonna get some diversification of just the what the market's doing. But in that case, you may not because I actually do just use stop orders. And you may not want to do that with individual symbols. Or you may want to kind of manage them uh and the thing is, if you trade longer data options, they do move slower. So you will have time, you know, presumably, to actually look at what's going on in your portfolio. I'm like, okay, this position is approaching or it's at the level of loss that I wanna take, right? So you can manually either do an adjustment or stop out or whatever it is. Um, you may not wanna leave it to just a hard stop order because if those trigger, right? And, I don't know if you've used those before, but you are at the subject you know to the whims of the liquidity right and there's any market makers or counterparties that are willing to fill you at a reasonable price so yeah i uh, I think for me I'm comfortable using kind of just typical stop orders and i've and <laughs> this is one of those things that like people always kind of are skeptical about, but you know I've done it and on this particular instrument in this particular situation. But if that's not something you're comfortable with, then yeah, the the approach you can still apply, but you may want to kind of take a little bit more of a hands-on approach and exit yourself and work the order Mm -hmm. as opposed to relying on like a hard stop or just a mechanical order.
1: Yeah, that's that's something that, that I think maybe... Most beginner options traders weren't taught to, you know, apply uh, actual hard stop losses versus um, adjusting your positions or rolling out early or closing out before expiration or just leaving it until expiration. So, what are the risks of using um, stop losses, even on liquid like index, the SPX, for example? What are the risks uh, of using that?
2: So, in terms of the actual implementation, I, I think the main risk that people think of is, again, those weird times when the bid-ask spread is really wide and you take a huge fill that's way above what you want to get out at, right? So that's kind of like the, the really practical consideration. So we've talked about how to manage those, but I think the other more conceptual risk in this mindset of not using stops, it kind of boils down to your approach and the type of strategy you use. And what I I mean is, you know, you talk about picking individual symbols, right? And having positions and adjusting as opposed to stopping out. I kind of, the way I view it is uh, kind of uh, opportunistic trading versus systematic trading, right? Opportunistic meaning you know, maybe you have a way to look for positions where you think you have an edge. Maybe you, you know, look at charts and if you think there's someone kind on of the bottom, you know, you sell a put, which is you know a, a bullish thesis, or vice versa. If you think there's kind of kind of it's hitting a resistance and you sell a call, right? Which is kind of a bearish thesis, or you might scan for tickers that have high volatility, right? Because you think there's more premium and there's some edge there. But you're essentially kind of hunting for these different opportunities. And once you get into them, you want to You you don't want to lose, right? You don't want to take a loss. So when things don't go your way, you can adjust, you can roll, and you're almost kind of managing these on like an individual level. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to get you to think about is, so my approach is more systematic, right? I'm, I'm actually, for example, selling a put option, you know, 90 DTE, 15 Delta every single day, regardless of what the market's doing. Now, if I were to say, you know, hit a stop one day and on that, because the market's going down and then because I'm going to enter a new trade anyways, that trade, the new trade is probably going to be at a different strike further out of the money, right? Because I always entering at the same Delta. Right. And so I've closed one trade that I'm losing and I've entered another one at a different position, maybe a different time. What does that sound like? Does that not sound like a role, you know? Because yeah, it sounds what is a like role, a role, right? <laughs> a role yeah. is closing one position, opening another, right? Right. But so the way I kind of uh, reconcile the two is you can talk about stops, right? And use that, you know, it's almost like this word that shall not be spoken, right? Or what if I completely change it around? I'm not going to use the word. I'm going to say, I enter multiple positions and diversify across time, and I'm constantly adjusting the delta and exposure of my book. When the market moves too much and I'm showing a profit, I want to lock in some profits and take risk off the table and kind of lighten the position size that I have, lock in gains. And when the market moves against me and I'm getting you know, my deltas and my, my risk is getting too high, I want to manage my exposure by closing some positions and opening new ones that have a slightly less delta, right? So I've said all this, but I'm talking about it in the context of managing risk and managing exposure. But, But guess what? That is exactly what I do with my profit taking and stop losses, right? And so this mindset shift of I'm using what is called a stop, but it's just a tool to adjust exposure, Right. And I want to kind of challenge you on one more thing. Like, let's say you have a habit of, you know, entering at a certain DTE and maybe regardless of what it's doing, you want to exit or roll at a certain, like let's say Tasty Trade talks about entering at 45 days DTE and then exiting one of the options at 21 DTE because they want to avoid kind of that late cycle risk and call it gamma risk.
0: Right. Or
2: let's say you enter at a certain delta, let's say 10 delta, right? And you have a habit of, rolling out to, uh, let's say the option moves against you, the delta goes up to 20 and you want to roll it back to 10, right? That's a stop, right? A stop is just this. There's, there's something that's triggering you to make an adjustment. And so this thought of, and I think what people kind of push back against is necessarily is exiting a position and then being done, right? So if you enter a trade and you stop out and you don't do anything else, you just take the loss and move on, right? I guess people feel like for one, you don't want like to lose. And for two, you if you think there's still some opportunity left, like you kind of want to stay in that position. You want to still be engaged with that ticker, but you want to change the exposure, right, to manage risk. But really that you you've stopped out, right? But you just re-engage in a different position. And so because my system for this particular strategy is just entering constantly. But using profit takes and stop losses to adjust the position, that's really just a continuous process of adjusting, right? So that, that's kind of like the message I've been kind of trying to spread. It's, it's like I, I use the word stop, but like I could re- I could literally just explain what I do without using the word stop once, but it could be the same thing. And I almost feel like sometimes yeah. that would be taken better, right? So that that kind of mindset shift. And that's like what I wanted to challenge people to think about differently.
1: I also see your. Uh, the difference, too, is when you implement stop losses, it's it's more systematic. It takes the emotion.
2: There's that, it. too, of course. Sure.
1: Whereas rolling, you're you're still stuck in it. Should I roll it now or leave it in there? There's a lot of discretionary decisions you have to make on when you roll things out.
2: That's true. I mean, it, it's funny you say discretionary, but I would I don't want to make assumptions, but I would hope that. For one, there should be kind of some absolute loss limit where if it's too much, you just got to move on, right? Because you got to protect your capital. But on the other hand, if you roll, yes, you want to stay in a trade or want to stay engaged with that position, but you probably should also have the same, whatever thesis you had to begin with, that thesis should still be intact, right? So if you just don't believe that position is going to have the edge or it's going to do play out the way you think it is, you shouldn't roll, right? You should just get out. So I, I want to say that even when you roll and it, 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 there's some discretion, it's almost like rather than having one rule or two rules that I use, you have like 10, you have like a, a set of rules and you're still trying to stay within the confines. It's not completely without a plan, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that That's how I see it anyways.
1: Yeah, that just emphasizes the importance of, of having your trading plan in place, right? Um... Do you adjust your strategy for periods of very high or low implied volatility? How does implied volatility? What is it? The role that it plays in in your strategy?
2: So, with the idea with expectancy hacking, which we talked about, the math behind that, there's one other element, and this kind of bakes in the implied volatility that you're asking about. If I were to sell a 15 delta option at 90 DTE. The amount of premium that takes in, that's going to change with the level of implied volatility, right? But if I do, for example, a fixed one contract every day, that basically means every trade is going to collect a slightly different amount of premium based on what implied volatility is doing. Now, if I still apply the same 60% profit take, 200% stop loss, those amounts relative to each trade will stay fixed as a percentage, right, 60 and 200. But because the premium is different in absolute terms, the dollar amount will be different. So for example, on a trade that I collected $2,000 on, 60% is gonna be $1,200, right? If I only collected $1,000, then 60% is $600. So this could introduce what's called sequence risk, which is just path dependency. If through pure bad luck, I only won the small trades and I got stopped out at the big ones, that's basically going to skew the probabilities, right? Because you're essentially not sizing consistently, right? Because I, because of the way my strategy is set up, the amount of premium you collect for me is a proxy for the amount of risk, right? Because everything is tied to that percentage relative to the credit. So the adjustment I make is I tailor the size of the trade to always target. So my phrase is called credit targeting. I'm targeting the same amount of premium per entry. So what can happen, essentially on high IV, I will scale down the size a bit because you're collecting more premium per contract. So I don't need to sell as many contracts and vice versa when volatility is lower, I'll go up in contract a bit to collect because each contract collects less premium. So by targeting a fixed level premium, this essentially minimizes that sequence risk because every single trade is sized consistently, but again, consistently in terms of credit, not necessarily in terms of contract size. I think that's kind of a, uh, a mechanic that I haven't seen people talk about and that, that's something that is actually key to um, my type of systematic approach.
1: Uh, David, what what exactly do you mean when you say sequence risk, sequence?
2: Okay, so if I were, let's just say there is, I make four trades and trade one, I collect 100. Trade two, I collect 200. Trade three, I collect 100. And trade four, I collect 200, right? So small, big, small, big. If I happen to lose all the small ones, right? The $100 ones and, sorry, um, lose the big ones, the $200 trades and I win the small ones. You're not going to get the same expectancy as if, let's say somebody else did the same strategy, but like their, their sequence of trades was different. They're offset, right? And their winners and losers were reversed, right? They won the big ones and they lost the small ones. Even if we, in this case, even if we trade the same approach, because one person won the big ones, whereas I won the small ones, our p is going to be different. So the expectancy is dependent on the sequence of events or the sequence of trades. That's sequence risk. But by leveling the amount of premium for every trade, mm-hmm. I'm basically trying to eliminate that sequence risk by making each trade sized, Consistently. Yeah.
1: Uh okay. Equalizing it. You don't want
2: to be uh I guess we want to just call it bad luck. You don't want to be subject to bad luck. That's I guess the the, the mm, layman's I term. see. Yeah.
1: So you, you mentioned that you have you take a top-down approach. Um, can you describe what that is exactly? In I think it's related to what you just mentioned about yeah, credit uh, uh, targeting. So
2: if if we put all this together. And so let's just say high level, like uh, I've tested this one strategy and I think the long-term expectancy or PCR premium capture rates, so let's just call it 25% for kind of a uh, use simple numbers. So if I had a, if I wanted to make 10%, so if I had a hundred thousand dollars and I'm trying to make 10%, 10% is 10,000. And that's the profit, the p I want to make in a given year. So if I'm, Expecting to long-term net 25 percent of all the premium I sell, I take my 10,000 PNL target and basically divide it by 0. 0.25, so you get 40,000, which means if I sell 40,000 of premium in a given year, then if I net 25 percent of that, right that's my $10,000 target. And so basically I have to sell 40,000 dollars of premium. Now, if I'm trading every day, there's 252 trades. You know I take the forty thousand and I divide it by two fifty two and that gives you the daily so-called credit target and essentially the plan is if you sell that amount of premium every day and let the strategy play out right at the end of the year you would have sold forty thousand in premium and if at the end of the year you've captured twenty five percent you would have captured the you know ten thousand dollars and so you can kind of set a high level return target and use that to back into the size of each individual trade. And again, Mm -hmm. size in this case is determined by the amount of premium, not necessarily the contract size.
1: So does this only work on, can this work, this top-down approach, can it work on choosing individual stocks?
2: Uh, There's two ways you can look at it if your approach is kind of systematic to a degree that it can be backtested, and there's actually quite a few off-the-shelf services people can use to to backtest different strategies, and you think there's some kind of consistency there in terms of the uh, the capture rate, then yes, you can kind of use that to size um, the trades. But if you take what you call kind of a systematic, uh, sorry, uh, more of a discretionary approach then you might need some history of uh, live trades, right? And then log them and sort of see, hey, you know, I, you know, I use a certain amount of capital per trade, and I, I usually am um, able to, you know, make X dollars. And for every dollar risk, and once you have some kind of expectation, it's, it's all about expectations, right? And again, it's not a prediction, right? E- even with a system like mine, where the the PCR, I think, is twenty five percent. That's gonna vary year to year, right? Long term, it may be 25%, maybe, right? But one year could be 40, one year could be lower, one year could be zero. Like this year is probably gonna be zero for, for the the one I'm running, which which is fine because again, the market went down like 25% as, as of you know the Friday, right? Um, but it's more about if you've traded enough to kind of have some expectation of what you get out of you know the capital that you that you put at risk then you can use it as a guideline for kind of sizing up and down. Um, I think mm-hmm. that would be how I would approach it to kind of use the same, same philosophy, I guess.
1: Going back a little bit to the, the volatility, you mentioned something I thought was very interesting in another podcast you were on that you use high volatility not to make more, but to make the same with less risk. I don't know if you can uh, expand on that a little bit, give a yeah, little context yeah. to that. Because I really thought that was interesting.
2: So that was basically baked into what I mentioned about the fact that because I'm credit targeting and you're going to cut more premium when IV is high, I naturally size down when volatility is high, which also kind of answers your question from earlier about, do I do anything different? From a strategic standpoint, there is no change to the mechanic but because of the nature of options pricing it naturally scales up and down in such a way that during high volatility so if, if i'm targeting some x return which means my credit target is you know some number then with super high iv i can collect the same amount of premium as my target using less contracts smaller size and actual you know notional or contract size terms and kind of that's what i mean i don't have this approach because some you know when when people first get into options selling sometimes they're taught that like high volatility is opportunity right you you stay small when Ivy is low and then you throw a bunch of buying power when Ivy is high like that's when you make the most money that's not untrue necessarily but when Ivy is high it's high for a reason right it's probably there's some event the market's gonna be volatile so you still have to be very cognizant of risk and manage the trades, right? If you want to kind of load up, so to speak, on high IV. And that's, mm-hmm. just, that's just one approach. But in my case, I just basically kind of take the opposite where like I'm actually scaling down, not because I'm like trying to be more conservative, but just because my mechanics dictate that since I'm trying to target the same level of premium, I just don't need to use as much leverage or capital or um, contract size when the IV is high. That's all.
1: Mm-hmm. When the VIX is high w- or when the you know, when there's a lot of option premium, wouldn't we want to take advantage of those times?
2: So in a manner of speaking, yes. Um but I kind of alluded to the fact that when VIX is high, it's when the it's high for a reason, right? And it's because the market believes that there's going to be a lot of volatility and the underlying or the S&P or whatever is going to move a lot. And when it moves a lot, right, you can be at risk, especially if you're selling options. And so the supposed edge is that because volatility is, you know, they call it mean reverting, right? When it's when there's a lot of fear in the market, right? Usually high levels of fear are not sustainable. And so volatility levels will come down. And so, there's a supposed edge is when you sell high volatility. You know, there's an the edge comes in because it's not sustainable. Volatility should eventually come down. When volatility comes down, the prices of options comes down, which means remember when you sell high, <laughs> it, it, you're selling high, buying low. That that's a kind of the backwards thinking that people who first get into options don't have to get around because we normally think of yeah. buy low, sell high, but it's a sell high, buy low. Um, so yes, there's supposedly presumably there's an opportunity that presents itself when volatility is high, but you just have to caveat what that doesn't mean number one you don't go all out and just blow all your buying power and sell everything, right? And on the other hand, you you still have to have a plan, right? Even if there is some more edge when volatility is high, you always have to have a plan and you have to be able to know how much risk you're actually taking and be able to manage it accordingly.
1: Your strategy is very data driven, right? Do you do a yes. lot of back testing?
2: That's right, we do. And um, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, um, I don't know if you heard of Option Omega, um, and there's like E Delta Pro, and those are those have different tickers you can test. There's uh, Option Omega even has like five minute data, which you don't really need that for longer data strategy. But I know there's a lot of people who like like to test um, like intraday strategies, but these kind of software available now for retail, like you can do a lot of different enumerations, and they're fast, right? So you're not waiting ages to do a back test, and so this kind of uh, automated back test lends itself very well to testing systematic strategies, right? You can throw out a bunch of enumerations and different things, and 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 just really like kind of focus on on you know different different patterns and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I now want to kind of get into um from your perspective some of the misconceptions about options trading. This is for the benefit of especially for those um who are currently trading stocks and are interested in in trading options or have started, you know, learning about options trading but maybe stuck on moving forward and what's your take on kind of addressing some of this misconception first about Is it riskier and is it hard to learn? And then where do you start?
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the misconceptions is Mm -hmm. that option trading has to be super leveraged. And I think that comes from more the fact that if you have access to the leverage, because the options themselves are by definition leveraged instruments and the way the the margin is used. For example, if I wanted to buy a thousand dollars worth of stock, right, you have to put out a thousand dollars of capital, right, to buy those shares. But if I wanted to have an instrument or an option that can give you the same exposure as that thousand dollars of stock, your broker may only require you to put up one fifth or even one tenth of that as margin, and you're not even outlaying any cash, right? It's just like the margin account will be deducted and you'll see the buying power go down. And so first of all, if people don't understand that they're leveraged, then they can unknowingly leverage a lot higher than they realize, right? So in this case, if the option is a 10 to one leverage instrument and I use 50% of my capital thinking, oh, I'm using half my capital, well, you're actually levered, you know, 5 times more than you think, right? Because it's it's like um sorry, if it's if it's 10 to 1 margin, then you're you're leveraged like 500%, right? You're using 50% capital, but your notional exposure is like 500%. So, I think it's more about a not misunderstanding of how the option works in terms of what the broker requires of the capital you put up. And so, you can use them super leveraged, but you don't have to, right? And Another misconception is like, uh, so people like, I guess in, again, like the 2020, 2021, like the Robin Hood and the meme stock phenomena and YOLO call buying, where you're only using options to get super crazy gains, right? 500%, 1000%. And yes, options are non-linear, meaning you can spend a little bit of cash and buy these out of the money options or have a low probability of success. But when they hit, they hit huge that's not the only way. In fact, that's like we don't use options that way. Options are literally, you know, tools. And I think that's one of the reasons like people can get lost is because first of all, even the same symbol, right? there's options at different expirations, different maturities, there's different strikes. And so the way to behave, and then there's Greeks, which you know describe how option price moves in relationship to the direction of the underlying with relation to the level of implied volatility with and with respect to you know time right um and so um again for us i think it's just the understanding that you can use options to express different hypotheses that you have on what the market will do which direction to go when it's going to happen and i think that's that that's kind of the beauty of it but also the complexity like there's just a lot you can do and i think really you have to kind of figure out like what your goal is and you can craft a strategy um and then lastly it's like options are like for degenerates for gambling Like, obviously you can again like you can buy these lotto tickets but like really i think they can they don't have to be seen as a super exotic thing and they can really be used in conjunction with kind of more modest and conservative strategies and just kind of more as an enhancement or a way to express different opinions.
1: Right. And, you know, a lot of the the strategies we talked about, and not just here, but in general, people talk more about on the sell side, you know, selling options versus buying options. I feel like there's not enough talk about, you know, when to buy a long put or something simple like that as a starting point, when to buy a long put or buy a long call, What do you think about that as kind of starting out, like just to learn the basics?
2: If, you know, coming from maybe like a stock trading background, like, you know, when you're trading stocks, you're generally kind of trading directionally, right? Mm -hmm. And the direction you pick may be based on some technical analysis, fundamental analysis, whatever it is that gives you a thesis. Now, if you have a direction that you want to bet on, right options are a tool to again give you leverage in a way that's capital efficient and limits your loss right if i pay you know 50 bucks on this out of the money call option on this stock that's the extent of what i can lose right but there's that possibility to make a big gain right so that's kind of the appeal so if you have an assumption right you can buy Puts and calls as a way to express that directional opinion. Now, on kind of the more sophisticated side, you know, people might look at um, kind of historical levels of volatility uh, versus kind of what's going on in the market. And if they have an opinion that, like, right now volatility is very high or the, the, the implied levels of volatility, right, like the option pricing, but they don't believe the the market's gonna actually be that volatile right so they believe the implied volatility is higher than what's going to be realized what's actually going to happen what i'm trying to get at is they believe the options are so-called expensive right this is kind of when you want to sell them and on the vice versa if for some reason they think there's going to be some kind of event there's going to be volatility but the market is kind of the implied level is very low and they kind of believe that it's underpricing the risk that's out there and they believe it's cheap relative to what's going to happen right this is when you kind of go around and buy options so it's the same idea of trying to buy low sell high but that's in relationship to what your analysis tells you about the level of volatility it's like when you think options are priced cheap you can buy them right and vice versa Um, so that's just just another another angle
1: yeah so far the the strategy that you described with expectancy hacking with adjusting your win size loss size Mm, mm -hmm. risk reward ratio that's that's a form of um, risk management yes and it sounds like you have very good tight risk management in place you know some people they it's drilled into them too is you know you have to you got to have risk management you know you got to have that layer in there and That's drilled in my ingrained in me too to have risk management. But at some point, though, you can have so much risk management that you can almost have no edge. And what comes first? What's more important? Risk management and then edge, or edge and then risk management, or both?
2: If you want to trade and sell options, firstly, you have a fundamental belief that there is some edge in the mispricing or general overstatement of. Options, right? Because if you believe that even the market's efficient, it's hard to—you well, can't perfectly price the future, right? The unknown, which is why there's that supposed overstatement of volatility, overpricing of options, and all the mechanics are. Because right? even if you believe that the edge is there, you, you can't just sell options willy-nilly because occasionally the risk is greater than the market thinks, right? And then you blow up, right? And that's why you have risk risk management and mechanics. But something to consider is that regardless of the how much edge there is, and, and this is something that's true for all trading. And this is just general kind of bankroll management. You you know that concept that people talk about of like, if you lose 1%, then you only have to make about a percent to catch up, right? If you lose about 10%, you've got to make like 12% or something to catch up. And the extreme example is if you lose 50%, 50% you have to make 100% to get back to zero, right? You've probably heard that there's like these charts and stuff. And mm-hmm. and that's the idea of the volatility tax. And it just means when you're talking about compounding your account, right? It's asymmetric, right? It's it's almost faster to compound downward than it is to compound upwards. So my point is, regardless of how much edge you think you have or there is in a strategy, if it's not size right, that nature of the kind of the asymmetric compounding will basically destroy whatever edge there is because you won't, if we're too volatile, you just kind of end up going nowhere if, if any one trade or any one you know, loss kind of wipes out a huge amount of the bankroll. So like the bankroll management, that in and of itself needs to be almost considered as a mechanic, right? And that's why I'm focused so much on the credit targeting and using that as a proxy of risk, right? Because I, for me, I'm like, if I collect this much credit, because I've told myself, I'm going to get out at this level. One way I look at it is I look at all of my positions that I have open on the books. And if I have X amount of credit for open positions, I'll know that if they all get stopped out, right? At the level that I I intend, right? That's the caveat. Then my realized loss is, you know, twice that, for example. And so I have kind of a a general idea of like my entire book size. If that's lost, what that represents. As a percentage of my portfolio, and I can use that to kind of keep the overall level in check, right and it's always kind of being mindful because, like regardless of how much edge there is, if you trade too big, you'll still end up going flat or negative, right the equity curve will go the wrong way because of that idea of the asymmetric compounding of large drawdowns
1: mm hmm and this can apply to any kind of trading, not just options. Yes, ex-
2: exactly. That's just just risk management one one you know that can apply to any kind of you know, investment or trading or whatever
1: right. In this current market environment has just in general, have you had to change your strategy or you're pretty much it doesn't matter what the market's doing
2: for me, because I've already sized things in a way that I'm accepting of the potential risk. Uh again, you know, back testing is not perfect. You know it's not to say if I pack test it and this is, I'm going to always have the exact result, right? every year moving forward. But it gives you context, right. I think for one, like you wouldn't necessarily trade a strategy that tests terribly. Right? <laughs> if all it shows is every year it loses, like why would you trade it? right? Now, mm-hmm. if a back test shows that a strategy always wins well, that's great. You, you can trade it, just take it with a grain of salt knowing that the result may differ, right? But then if you look at a strategy and you backtest, you want to look at like, okay, so on average, maybe I can make this much percent a year, but then the drawdowns are this percent, right? And you're always looking at the path, um, not just the destination of that strategy, right? And if and, and then once you kind of have a context of the potential path of that strategy, you can size it up and down accordingly based on your risk tolerance and whether or not you're kind of combining that with other strategies.
1: For those who don't trade options but are interested, you know, this could be a little bit overwhelming, but we all have to start somewhere. And I think... In general, I think the simpler you start, the better. Start very simple. I hope that we can continue the conversation of options trading into the chat with traders community. Thank you so much, David. I know we ran over a little bit, um, but this has been extremely helpful. How can listeners contact you if they have uh, want to get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, uh, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is the Trade Buster. And that's actually the name of my podcast as well. So if you go to any of the typical podcast platforms, uh, you just look for The Trade Busters. But this is plural. So like The Ghostbusters, but The Trade Busters. And then my Twitter handle, at The Trade Buster.
1: David, thank you so much for joining me today in this interview. It's really great having you.
0: Yeah,
2: thanks so much for the opportunity. It, it's, it's been a blast.